Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Thursday, the 30th of August. Wow, already. And our special guest is Michael Strong, the author of The Habit of Thought and Be the Solution. Michael, thanks for being here. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Steve. I am really delighted you're here, as you'll hear in the interview. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project, thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for support. If you missed the Learning 2.0 conference, all of the recordings are up, and online. we're going to reference some of those sessions tonight. Um, really, really a fun virtual conference. Everything is freely available at learning20.com. We're in the last days of Connected Educator Month. We've had several closing sessions today. Uh, there's uh, some more tomorrow, but go to connectededucatormonth.org, both for any live activities tomorrow and for all of those recordings. Coming up in October, our two-day free virtual conference on the future of libraries, Library 2.012, sponsored thankfully by San Jose State University School of Library and Information Sciences. And then in November, we have our terrific five-day, 24-hour-a-day, massive global education conference. Both the Library 2.012 conference and the Global Education Conference are still accepting submission proposals. These are peer-to-peer -peer development opportunities, so we hope that you will submit to present or just attend. They're a lot of fun. Coming up on the Future of Education next week, uh, Ron Walk talks about his book, Wasting Minds, where our education system is failing and what we can do about it. Angie McAllister, whom I did not know until a long phone conversation, is going to talk to us about educational social networks and learning analytics. That is really going to be fun. Pat Ferenga will talk about John Holt and homeschooling. Uh, Shelley Blake Plock on the Digital Harbor Foundation. Shelley's been an active participant in some of these uh, sessions for Connected Educator Month on the shifting of leadership in education. Should be well worth listening to. Uh, anyway, there's lots more coming up, hopefully something that's of interest to you, and um, of course, all free to join. If you've missed any of the sessions, they are all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form and in MP3 audio format. Tony Wagner talked to us this week about creating innovators. Great tie-in to, to Michael tonight. Um, and then all of the keynotes from Learning 2.0, including Sugata Mitra, uh, Audrey Waters, Gordon Dryden from New Zealand, Lee Rainey from Pew, many, many more really worth uh, listening to. I know that's so much material you may just give up, but hopefully there's something there that you will find of value. So this is when you get to tell us where you're participating from. Look to the map, and to the left of the map you should see some icons. You're looking for the star. It's the second one down. You double click on that and click on the map, and then you can let us know in the chat as well time and temperature. This has been a long day of webinars. <laughs> if you're not exhausted yet, more power to you. But thanks to those of you who have participated in several of them today for coming again. Looks like we're North America-centric, although uh, South Korea or Japan there. Tempe, Arizona, Atlanta, British Columbia, Brazil, of course. Love having folks from Brazil, where I lived for a year when I was in high school. San Jose, Colombia. Oh, good. We're not as North America centric as I thought we were. Well, wherever you're participating from, or if you're listening to the recording, 
We're sure glad to have you with us. I have created a Mighty Bell page for this session. Uh, full disclosure is that I do consulting work for Mighty Bell. It's Gina Bianchini who created uh, Ning. I love this program. It is a combination of curation and conversation. So there is a Mighty Bell space with um, resources, Michael's website, and hang on one second, and um, TEDx talks and other great video. Uh, please feel free to join that and keep the conversation going there if you would like. So, uh, Michael, uh, I'm going to turn my video off so we can see you. Reading this book felt to me like uh, meeting an old friend again. It reminded me of all of the things that I so passionately believed when I went to the liberal arts college, Haverford College in Pennsylvania, you know, some 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And, uh, you know, the great arguments for a deeply transformative educational experience. Tell us, if you would, a little bit about your history because it uh, intertwined so many brilliant threads for me that I, that I want to make sure that we bring out. And does it start with St. John's College? Well, thank you, Steve. Uh, first of all, I want to say it's a delight to discover a, a web channel like this that's so focused on education. I, I must say that as somebody who cares passionately about education, thinks, thinks it's the most important thing out there, um, sometimes I am depressed by how little focus there is on education, and especially in terms of innovative future education. Sometimes it looks as if if education gets attention at all, it's mostly um, kind of a downer. So uh, I, I'm just really inspired to be here with you on a program where you're um, rigorously and adamantly focused on the future of education in a great way. So thank you for that. Um, to kind of go back a little bit, I, I came from a working class household where, you know, my parents, good people, but uh, I think we had three or four books in the house when I was growing up. And uh, as it turns out, I had good test scores, so I got a whole lot of information from colleges. Uh, when I was getting information from colleges, I remember getting a brochure from St. John's. All the rest of the brochures were, uh, you know, beautiful campuses with lots of young, attractive college students having fun out in the big green fields, and St. John's is all black and white brochure about um, you know, the great books. And I loved it, and I was going to drop out of my senior year of high school and go to St. John's, but then my college counselor said, look, you can go to Harvard and get everything you get at St. John's, plus you have a Harvard degree. And you can study Plato, Shakespeare, Greek, French, whatever, and so she, she talked me into it. I went to Harvard. And after a semester, I was bored because I hate being lectured at. I don't care how famous the people are who are lecturing at you. Um, they're just, you know, talking at you. And I, I, I was already full of questions. I had one small discussion class at Harvard, but it was led by a graduate student who was mostly just dragging us through his dissertation and seeing if we had any comments on his dissertation, which is not quite the same as open-ended intellectual conversation. So I left for St. John's. Uh, David Reisman, the famous sociologist, helped arrange so that I could get Harvard credit at St. John's. He had written well about St. John's in uh, one of his books way back, way back in the 50s or 60s. Um, I loved St. John's, although St. John's is known as a great book college, what I loved most about it was intellectual dialogue. Um, people were passionately interested about ideas. So for four years I was immersed in a situation where at breakfast I could randomly sit with someone and discuss 
Plato, Kant, Euclid, physics, quantum physics, biology, God, religion, whatever, and people were ready to talk about ideas. When I came home for Christmas, I remember asking my grandfather why he thought what he thought, and after a few minutes he said, you're harassing me, leave me alone. And I realized I was so used to this culture where people talk about ideas all the time. Uh, that said, I loved it so much, after leaving St. John's, I wanted to transmit it to younger people. So um, I was in graduate school at the University of Chicago in the Committee on Social Talk, and I started doing consulting work for Mortimer Adler's Paideia Project in inner city Chicago public schools, where for people who are not familiar, the basic setup of a Socratic seminar, which is the core innovation of Paideia, and in some ways it's awkward to call it an innovation, because in one sense, of course, Socratic-style intellectual dialogues are 2,500 years old. But relative to public school pedagogy, where most of it was lecture, occasionally some small group activities, it was relatively unusual to have an open-ended conversation. Um, so my experience leading open-ended conversations based on text in Chicago public schools led quite by accident to a 15-year career in education, starting, as I say, as a public school reformer and then gradually uh, shifting to private schools. After working in Chicago public schools, I got a job at the Alaska Paideia Project, training teachers to lead Socratic discussions there. Um, the, we were on soft money when we ran, after, ran out of soft money. Uh, some parents, and there was no longer a budget for us to work in public schools, some parents asked me to start a private school based on Socratic principles. Uh, my colleagues and I started what's called the Athenaeum School in Anchorage. Uh, they're still there. I went on to work for the Judson Montessori School in San Antonio, where I helped create a Socratic program in a Montessori school. It's fascinating. Then I helped create a um, school for highly gifted students in South Florida called the Winston Academy. Uh, the founder, Winston Ling, was a parent who wanted advanced academic education for his children. He looked all over South Florida, could not find a public or private school. It was adequately academic for his case. He hired me to help create an intensely academic program for secondary students. After that, I went to the Palo Alto area and helped create Montessori Middle School for the Early Learning Institute, a multi-campus Montessori organization uh, with middle schools, as it turns out, elementary and middle schools in Palo Alto and Pleasanton. Then I was asked to create a charter Paidea High School in Angel Fire, New Mexico which I launched. Um, after spending a couple of years there as principal, I was forced out because I didn't have a teaching or principal certificate, uh, administrative certificate. I'd never been licensed as a teacher. I'd never been trained as a teacher. Um, had no you know, relevant credentials. In order to have been licensed as an administrator in New Mexico at that point, I would have needed seven years experience as a licensed teacher, which is not possible. As it turned out, I at that point met John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods. He and I shared a passion for entrepreneurial solutions to world problems, and so I left uh, K-12 education at that point, and for the last eight years have been promoting entrepreneurial solutions to world problems in diverse ways around the world. That's the short version. <laughs> That's such a great history. Okay, I want to dwell on the Paideia proposal, um, in part because I actually um, I've been a huge Mortimer Adler fan, having read his book, How to Read a Book, when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And then um, I think I somewhere own one of the Paideia books that he wrote. And uh, so I, I had to go back and kind of look it up again. And I was 
almost fell out of my chair because basically the idea, is, and this is the the word is the same root as the end of the word encyclopedia, if I'm not mistaken. But the idea was yep. to train for liberty and nobility, and it feels to me like that's the piece that that we're really missing right now is this idea that the education provides you with liberty and freedom through kind of rigorous thought and an understanding of your perspective and other people's perspectives. Um, and then there's this great set of dec declaration of principles that are the basis of the Paideia uh, proposal. Um, did you have, I, I don't know what uh, when he was alive or the like, but did you ever actually work with him? Um, I was working in his Paideia office. He was still alive and still occasionally coming into, into the office. I would not say he was very active at that point. I did see him lead a Socratic discussion at the Aspen Institute uh, before I became involved with the Chicago Paideia office. I, I would say his style as a Socratic leader was a little bit bullying. Um, sometimes there are a lot of different kinds of Socratic styles. Uh, anyone who's seen the paper chase has this impression of law school Socratic is, is in its own way uh, rigorous or bullying, depending on how you want to talk about it. Uh, my personal Socratic practice is, uh, I, I practice Tai Chi as well. I think of um, the law school and perhaps the Adler style as a little bit more karate, and I'm a little bit more Tai Chi. So you have hard style Socratic and soft style Socratic. He's a bit more of the hard style Socratic. Well, I really appreciate your reintroducing that material to me, and I'm uh, I'm going to go back and really look at it after after we're done. Uh, tell us why there might be confusion over what Socratic practice is. Sure. Well, sometimes in order to minimize um, kind of fear and alienation, because simply you know the term Socratic sometimes uh, in creates fear or tension or all sorts of concern, sometimes I simply describe it as intellectual dialogue. There's a sense, Alfred North White had famously said that all of Western civilization could be understood, or all of Western philosophy could be understood as a series of footnotes to Plato. In a sense, I see all of Western civilization can be understood as, a, as really the, the practice of Socratic dialogue. Um, Socrates famously was put to death for corrupting young and not believing in the gods of Athens, what he really did is he asked open-ended questions trying to get people to have a coherent understanding of their own beliefs. So if you believe you're virtuous, and I say, Steve, why do you think you're virtuous? What makes you virtuous? And unlike academic philosophy as practiced today, which is a highly technical, specialized system, um, Socrates, of course, walked around the town of Athens and actually engaged prominent people and also young people in ordinary conversations. So although I personally have great reverence for Socrates and the Socratic tradition and believe it's fundamentally the foundation of intellectual civil of Western civilization and intellectual dialogue as we know it, I also like to impress upon people all it is is people talking and trying to, trying to understand each other's belief structures. If I want to know what you believe and why and you want to know what I believe and why, whether it's about you know who won the basketball game last night or what string theory is in physics, in a sense, we're all practicing Socratic dialogue. We're authentically, as long as we're authentically trying to understand each other um, and trying to make sense out of each other's perspective, I would say we're, we're behaving Socratically. Sorry.
sorry, I lost my audio there. Part of the reason I think this is so interesting right now is that it feels as though culturally this is not how we practice politics or even large national dialogue. Um, that there's a um, that, that we're we're living in a period of time in which um, thoughtfulness and seeing other people's perspectives is not the norm. Uh, so, it, uh, if you were to describe the sort of the ultimate goal of education for a student in a Socratic practice environment, what, how would you say that? Well, that, that's a great point. I mean, and it's nice, by the way, to be reminded that there are other people out there who remember the great old liberal arts tradition. More broadly, to create a big tent, I think there was a beautiful liberal arts tradition in the United States where open-ended exploratory dialogue was the norm. And I think many generations of students have had that. Um, when I was introducing Socratic dialogue into K-12 classrooms, uh, I found that many young people had never been exposed to this sort of interaction. So while, you know, just by means of the kinds of questions you ask and the fact that you listen, um, in some ways it's banal and ordinary, and in other ways it's extraordinary and miraculous. Uh, I, I, sometimes I describe what I do as person A speaks, person B listens, and thinks about it, and then replies. Um, it sounds very, very simple, but when you think about it, and when you observe most adults, whether it's in politics or even business meetings or board meetings of any kind, you see how rare it is for somebody to be a thoughtful listener who thinks and then replies and then allows the other person to engage in the same behavior. Um, I had, at one point, in trying to validate the practice I was teaching, and get support for it. Um, this is in Anchorage, Alaska, in an inner city middle school there. I brought in some business people, especially female business people, and had them observe a class before, this is an eighth grade class, before I started working with it, and then at the end of a semester working with it. And they were amazed at how polite and respectful the eighth grade students were these are, you know, inner city classrooms after I trained them how to listen and think about each other's ideas. And they said, this is so rare in the business world. And yet, political world is even worse than that. I think most of the time people are aggressively trying to push their ideas on each other. And very rare in, in, our, in the public sphere, we see situations in which two or more people are authentically trying to understand each other's perspective. There was a book I read that really significantly influenced me in this regard. It's actually called Influence. I'm trying to remember the subtitle, uh, The Psychology of Persuasion. And I remember being kind of stunned at the degree to which um, it felt as though there were ways in which social forces were used to try and gain agreement rather than through persuasion or dialogue. Um, if we think about students, is the ultimate goal for them to be uh, become independent thinkers? I feel like that's what I'm hearing you say. Well, that, that's big time my goal. And, and actually, that gets to something very often teachers and students and parents seeing me practice, uh, introduce Socratic dialogue in a classroom, think, oh, wow, this is great. This is just like debate. Because for many people, the closest experience they've had to this is debate, in this case, you know, competitive uh, debate in high school and college. I've got nothing against competitive debate, and I see it as a useful way to develop skills, for sure. That said, 
in competitive debate, as in the real world, people are trying to win, as it were, by means of forcing their opinions on others, or at least to persuade an in a third-party public that their opinion is right or wrong. For me, there's a crucial di difference between debate and dialogue, because in dialogue, in order to have a, an honest dialogue, if you tell me something that I haven't thought of or that gets me to change my opinion, it's crucial for me to say, wow, I hadn't thought of that, Steve. Or, well, if what you're saying is true, then I'm going to have to change my perspective in such and such a way. And you can see that uh, one never sees that sort of authentic mutual understanding in public debates. Uh, and in competitive debate in high school and college, you would lose points for doing that. So one of the ways in which I structure a situation in order to develop that kind of dialogue is we work with very difficult texts. I've used Plato, Kant, uh, Martin Buber, and so forth with 7th and 8th grade students reading a paragraph. It'll take us an hour to decipher a paragraph. It's impossibly difficult. But because it's so difficult, we have to work as a team to understand what the heck the author is saying. And because there's this common goal of trying to understand the author, if two or more students get into a, an aggressive beat-each-other-up style debate, it does not forward the cause of understanding what's going on. So I, as much as possible, I try to create a situation in which mutual understanding is rewarded in terms of the entire group understanding what's going on in the text we're reading. Um, it's, it's exhausting. People see me do this as say it just requires incredible patience. But for those of us who care about authentic dialogue and mutual understanding and actually getting people to think and think for themselves, uh, it's, it's much, much different and I would say far more valuable than conventional debate. So I don't want to go too deeply here and you can certainly steer me back. We had Tony Wagner on the show Tuesday night and I asked him the question about the value of a compliance-driven education system to industry and government, sort of the, the degree to which that benefits those who are uh, in positions of leadership and authority. And I, my question was, does this kind of independent thought that, that he describes as innovation or entrepreneurship, probably in very similar ways that you would, does it end up threatening existing institutions, and will they be supportive of an education system that produces this kind of independence of thought? Is that going to too much of a conspiracy theory place, or is, is there likely to be some pushback for this kind of independence? Well, uh, there, there are a lot of great, fascinating issues that that brings up. What I would say is that insofar as with respect to the economy, that might have been true in the past, I think it's no longer true at all. In the, in the world of um, business and economics. And one way I put it is um, increasingly the new economy rewards independent thinkers. The people with uh, the, the most uh, exciting job prospects are fundamentally entrepreneurial and they may or may not start their own company, but I work with a lot of people, uh, young people and older, who are graphic designers, web designers, computer programmers, uh, branding and marketing experts, all sorts of people who are selling their skills in an open marketplace. Um, you know, Dan Pink, uh, whom I love, talks about free agent nation. I think free agent nation is probably 10, 15 years old now. And I do think the 21st century economy is going to be led by people who are capable of thinking for themselves and capable of being creators. At a much more banal level, 
Um, I've had students say that, well, this only applies to high-end jobs. What about low-end jobs? I spent much of my uh, college years, high school and college, working in restaurants. And I would say, even in the restaurant world, I had two kinds of bosses. There were some kinds of bosses who wanted me to do exactly what they told me to do, and other kinds of bosses who wanted me to be an empowered, independent employee who could make great decisions and provide better customer service. I think there's a huge literature from lots of different management consultants talking about the ways in which um, an empowered workforce of independent creators is going to result in more successful companies. So while there are certainly, I would say, some old-style employers, some old-style leaders in politics, religion, uh, you know, academia, you name it, who prefer a, a submissive consent, the trends are all in a positive direction. I think that we are entering a, an era in which um, the value to organizations of independent, capable thinkers is becoming extraordinary. And as a parent and um, as, as a national leader, I think everybody ought to want this. So this is really fun, Michael, and I appreciate your letting me kind of explore this territory. I've been watching some of the Republican National Convention, and I've been struck by kind of the degree to which both emotion is displayed and maybe played upon, especially kind of by loud music and another way. And I've kept thinking, does this take away from the fuller potential dialogue when there's an expectation that there will be kind of a passion-based following to a political party? Um, is that too much of a stretch? Well, I, I think that um, the political parties are all about passion-based fanaticism. Now, I would say that uh, the, if what one is doing in, edu in education is developing independent thinker, thinkers, then one will not have reliable followers. And so any sort of movement that depends on reliable followers, reliable mindless followers, if you will, um, it will not be excited about independent education that supports independently minded people. Um, but it's, it's interesting. Just, just to go um, to fundamentalist Christians, um, when I went to public schools in Alaska, there were fundamentalist Christians who were very hostile to my introducing this in public school classrooms. At one extreme, there was a woman who said, point blank, your questions cause confusion. Confusion comes from Satan. Therefore, what you are doing is satanic. And I'm going to get you out of the public schools here. And she did, and she succeeded. So sometimes it's that stark, and there's that much opposition. I, I went on to ask her, but in the 21st century market, your child will need higher level thinking skills. And she said, my husband works on an oil platform. He doesn't need higher level thinking skills. I'm a housewife. I don't need higher level thinking skills. You know, to some extent, we're dumb and we like it that way. That said, to be fair on the other side, I also met fundamentalist Christians who were initially very hostile, but when I explained that this would help their children avoid peer pressure, make better decisions, get better careers. There were also other fundamentalist Christians who eventually came to trust me and welcomed me. So I, I would say um, all stereotypes are sometimes true and sometimes false, and I'm willing to work with anyone who sees the benefit of this um, you know, and can't win them all. So I'm going to steer us back to a, a, a straighter course here, but thanks for, for letting me go off in that direction. So uh, one of the themes of the interview series has been this idea of self-directed learning. 
And I'm interested in how um, Socratic practice uh, relates to self-directed learning, especially because there's probably nuance with mentorship and understanding that self-direction takes a period of time to get to. How do you describe that aspect of Socratic practice? Well, to use I mean, self-directed learning, I realize is what people say, you, the term they use, but I, I love autodidacticism. I very much identify as an autodidact. And my goal as an educator has always been to develop autodidacts. Um, one of the things that people don't realize about St. John's College is that all of the tutors, they call them tutors rather than professors, are required to teach all subjects, which means if you go to St. John's and get a job and you start by teaching Greek and you have a PhD in Greek, soon you will be required to teach music, physics, French, poetry, religion, everything. As a consequence at St. John's, one often finds oneself in a situation where the tutor really is more or less ignorant of the subject and the group as a whole is working to understand, you know, Plato or Einstein or whatever and struggling like mad to make sense of it. In one sense, it's very disorienting, but in another sense, you realize if you really try, you can learn anything. Um, at one point, I was asked to help a teacher um, of graduate level biochemistry to improve his classroom dialogues because he said he'd, he was offering sort of a great books approach to biochem, some of the greatest papers in biochem for the last 20 years, and he said the students were silent. They wouldn't ask, answer any questions. And, uh, you know, in two days I, I managed to figure out a biochem paper that I'd never read before, and I went and tried to have a conversation. I realized the students were not used to thinking for themselves. They'd gotten to, to graduate school being really good at doing problem sets, um, and you can, you can specialize in solving problems for problem sets without having the ability to rip an article apart and figure out what's, what's going on in there. It's really a different kind of skill. So I see the kind of um, dialogue in which we work together to understand things, and especially working on difficult, unfamiliar texts as a fabulous foundation for self-directed learning. Um, ideally, one should get to the point where one is so intellectually confident that with the help of Google, you could learn anything. I always like to say that the, um, the ideal St. John's foreign language test would be one where you don't know what languages you'll be tested on. You go into the testing room on Friday, and you're given a passage in Swahili, or Mandarin, or Polish, or whatever, along with the grammar and the vocabulary, and you're supposed to figure it out. Or to do a different version, um, there's some very sophisticated piece of software you're supposed to install it and figure out how to use it. In the real world, and this connects to the entrepreneurship, um, entrepreneurs need to solve problems all the time. And I would say a lot of the successful ones are people who can figure out how to solve new problems they've never encountered before. And of course, this goes into flow, the notion of optimal experience, once you get to the point where you enjoy solving unfamiliar, difficult problems from any field in any direction, uh, life is a constant learning process. It's a constant joy. So I, I see the self-directed learning literature as a, a version of the radical autodidacticism that I celebrate. Um, and, and, and I would say with practice, I think almost anybody can get there. The other thing is people think, oh, you have to be really smart. I've seen teachers at the age of 50 who don't think of themselves as smart after doing this for a few years become much more intellectually confident 
and, and willing to take on uh, academic literature outside their domain and work on making sense of it. And initially, you're slow in a new domain, but you just work and figure it out. So I think for many of us who've participated in the social media activity, the Web 2.0 opportunities to, to participate and create, that we would say we've gone through a similar process. How do you relate the idea of being an autodidact with the importance of learning from and with others? Well, I think the great celebration of dialogue is with two things. I mean, sometimes you just need technical um, help. So sometimes if I'm working on something and I know that it could take, you know, I could figure something out, but it could take me 10 hours, or I can call a friend or email or chat a friend and they'll explain it in two minutes. Um, you know, I, I, would rather, I would rather use their expertise and figure it out in two minutes and have them tell me in two minutes than spend 10 hours. So there's that very basic, let's just be practical about this sort of thing. And then there's also um, the collaborative experience of I want somebody else's perspective. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time writing and I always like to test my writing on as many people as possible just because I get stuck in my own world and I'm very, I'm very aware I'm stuck in my own world. So there, there's both an important part of collaboration that's sharing technical knowledge or specialized knowledge, and there's another crucial part of collaboration that's getting us to see the world in different ways so that we can be more effective communicators, whether it's visually, uh, orally, you know, in terms of software functionality, whatever it is we want to be effective with a broader audience, the best way to, to learn about broader, broader audiences is to interact with other human beings. Are you familiar with the work of Sugata Mitra? Yes, yes, not deeply. I met him once at a conference. I saw the hole in the wall thing. Fabulous, just fabulous. So I'm wondering how that relates. Uh, the great quote I pulled out of your book, one of the quotes was the tradition at St. John's of the leader as learner rather than teacher. And one of those experiments that Sugata did was to put these kiosks out in rural India and allow the students to work with each other to learn. How do you bridge this idea of teacherless learning with um, the, the leader as, as lead learner? Well, that, that's a great, a great question. Um, uh, the um, memoirs of a superfluous man, I forget, Albert J. Nock. Albert J. Nock was once told um, that he was a great teacher. And he said, but I don't do anything. And the other person said, yes, but it's the way in which you don't do anything that's so great. And, and that's sort of a, um, a koan, if you will, for I've become very interested in the context within which spontaneous learning takes place. Um, you know, I've got a background in Montessori education, which is in one sense spontaneous, in another very structured. I'm also familiar <laughs> excuse me, with uh, Sudbury Valley schools where it's completely unstructured, very much like Summerhill. And I've seen really wonderful things happen in Sudbury Valley radical, radically unstructured schools, and sometimes not. And what I would say is that uh, there's a delicate ecosystem in which the other, both oneself, the material, and the other students become crucial. So there are situations, certainly, where um, without any any external force at all, beautiful spontaneous learning takes place, sometimes for a moment, sometimes for years at a time. There are other situations in which perhaps um, an individual 
or one or more individuals are bullies or there's uh, hostile dynamics. Um, there are all sorts of, I would say, interpersonal dysfunctions that can ruin a spontaneous learning situation. And so one of the things that I, as leader, began to focus more and more on was addressing the interpersonal dysfunctions. Because I think once the interpersonal dysfunctions have been addressed, then learning is, once again, spontaneous and magical. But I've certainly seen many situations in which it's supposed to be spontaneous and magical, but one or more parties are damaging the group dynamic such that it's a miserable experience. So how do we draw this part of the conversation into school reform? Coming from your background with your kind of commitments to this style of thinking about learning, um, how do you approach the whole question of school reform right now? Well, you know, the thing that I eventually did, you know, I started out in reforming public schools. I could transform a classroom. Sometimes I could transform, or my colleagues and I, it wasn't all me, could transform an entire school. But then what would happen would be if a different principal showed up or a different superintendent or a different school board, they could destroy a year's worth of work overnight. Um, in addition, in a public school, there is a top-down curriculum. No Child Left Behind has made that much worse. So insofar as the key to authentic intellectual dialogue is allowing students to explore ideas that, they, that interest them, uh, the pressure towards state-mandated standards have reduced the amount of time available for authentic exploration of ideas. Just a quick anecdote before going back to the main question. Um, one of the favorite ways I like to teach is not to have a curriculum at all, but to call it a, um, an emerging curriculum. Kim Zegon in Anchorage uh, developed this first, where we would have, say, one conversation on poetry, and you'd discover there was intense interest on gender issues. And so then you'd do a dialogue on perhaps group dynamics and how males and females interact differently in group dynamics. And then perhaps that would get into an issue of what is truth and do different people have different perspectives on truth. Then we'd read abstract philosophy on truth and so forth and so on. And you can imagine how the passion, and you can never predict what passion a group of students will have, but it's wonderful to be able to have the next dialogue be based on the passion of the previous one. Whereas in most classrooms today, public and charter, governed by No Child Left Behind, there is curriculum that must be covered in order to do well on the annual the test that measure annual yearly progress. As a consequence of this, um, I'm very passionate about creating new schools and new schools outside the boundaries of NCLB. At present, it's private schools. Um, if they would get rid of NCLB, charter schools would allow for more freedom again. Uh, I'm not holding my breath on this. But for me, the, the future is really creating new forms of education. Also homeschooling, unschooling. Um, I know a lot of parents who are unschooling or homeschooling, and sometimes when I tell them, well, if you are not feeling as if you can do the whole thing, why don't you create co-ops and or create a private school? A lot of people find it really scary to create a private school. They think, oh, Philip Sandover or something. Whereas I see a movement where parents are spontaneously blending online education, homeschooling, creating you know, learning co-ops. Sometimes it becomes a private school. I helped create a school in Austin last fall where 
it can be used as a full-time private school if parents want to do that or students want to do that. Or you can also purchase, um, you know, a la carte. So if you just want the uh, graphic design class or the math class or the biology class or the music class, that's okay too. And I look forward to a world in which people have a broad, a very diverse set of options so that uh, everyone's needs can be met. I don't think there's one right way to educate at all. So one of the intriguing aspects of what we're talking about is that is that these ways of thinking about education or, or any way of thinking that involves sort of deeper thought ends up being a secondary narrative. That it's very hard for the more complex thinking to become the primary narrative in the same way that I feel like we don't do a good job with prison reform or prisons because the, the actual answers are much more, require much more thinking than we're, that take place in our public dialogue. So if, if this narrative that you've described of teaching and learning um, is a more thoughtful narrative, can we hope that it would become the primary narrative or do we actually hope that it just stays a strong secondary narrative so that you don't kill the goose as it needs to to um, become more broad and widespread? Well, um, I, I'm by nature extraordinarily optimistic. So I, I think that at some point we're going to see the collapse of conventional education that is as dramatic and rapid as was the collapse of the Berlin Wall uh, in 1991. I, I know so many people that are so frustrated with existing education I, um, you know, a lot of the schools I created were small, highly personalized schools, and many of the students that came to our students, their school, schools, um, were in crisis. Um, often they were very gifted, sometimes very radical learning disabilities, sometimes, um, you know, psychological problems, sometimes just, uh, you know, a little bit different or whatever. But these were kids who were sometimes, um, wouldn't get out of bed in the morning to go to school, uh, very bright students who were getting straight F's in school, sometimes students who had been suicidal. Um, and within, within a semester or a year, I would see these students come to life and be vibrantly happy and alive, and then go on to have spectacular lives. Um, you, know, I, you know, it's sort of the canary in the coal mine sort of thing. I, I've seen a lot of students who are in deep crisis in school, and once they go into a different school, it's obvious that it was not the child's fault at all. It was the school's fault. And I think as more and more parents realize that the school doesn't need to be this way, I, I think that we'll see um, a phase change, as it were, between schools as they are today and schools where um, there's a lot more respect for the learner and the children enjoy learning a lot more because of that. Uh, parents will no longer have to fight with their kids over doing homework every night. I think drug and alcohol addiction among teens will be reduced. I, I actually think most of our teen pathologies are, if not caused by, grossly exacerbated by the misery of school. And I often like to say that, uh, for me, secondary school were the most cruel and boring years of my life. When I, when I um, have students coming into one of my very warm, positive schools, sometimes parents will say, but don't they need to learn the real life by going to a regular school? And I point out to them, at no point in my adult life have I experienced the boredom that I did in grades 7 through 12, and at no point in my adult life do I experience the cruelty that was routine in grades 7 through 12. So I, I think that we're seeing a lot more parents escaping the system. Uh, it's like a crack in the dike. Once they realize 
the system has no credibility. It's actually um, kind of a medieval institution that accidentally survived into the present. Uh, things will change very rapidly. So I want to go there with you, but help me get there. The I feel as though the the more prominent narrative right now is that schools are broken and so we need more accountability. And that people adopt that because it's actually a little bit of an easier thought, a much easier thought than the hard work that you've described. So how do we get from where we are now to this vision you have without getting stuck in high stakes accountability? So that's a great question, a really great question. I think um, well, one of my visions is, and the reason I met John Mackey, CEO of Whole Foods, is a mutual acquaintance heard me say, I wanted to create the Whole Foods of Education. Um, you know, in the 1970s, the health food stores were, and this is from a Business Week article that I, I thought was great on Whole Foods, um, health food stores were run by dirty, smelly hippies who tried to convince us that carob tasted like chocolate. Um, as somebody who loves good chocolate, I remember people trying to convince me that carob was chocolate. I'm like, no, I really prefer chocolate. And the, the narrative there is that Whole Foods won because they provided healthy, natural foods plus good chocolate, good wine, good meat, um, and there wasn't this moralizing tone that you had to do it that way. I think that um, there, and then, and then there's something known as the cultural creative demographic highly educated young people mostly, and follow now into their 40s and 50s, who are the primary um, customers of Whole Foods. These are the people who are the most educated. Whole Foods uh, locates its stores in places of the highest concentrations of college students. These people prefer to send their kids to very holistic Montessori schools, Waldorf schools, or do an unschooling program with them. And more and more of those people are doing so. Some of them still feel a sort of loyalty to the public schools, but they're escaping in droves. And I think once they realize that, say, a tuition tax credit program would allow them to be able to afford the Montessori and Waldorf schools they want, and a tuition tax credit program would allow inner city minority students to escape from the hell holes that their schools were, that is once school choice fully gets the moral high ground, then I think we'll see a lot more diversity and fragmentation in education. That said, you're still correct, the accountability uh, monster is out there. The next phase, which I work on a great deal, is to point out that I think whether, regardless of what class or culture one is, I think cultural capital is more important than anything. It is if one has an entrepreneurial spirit, if one has discipline, if one can engage creatively in solving problems, one can think for oneself, um, you know, if one has a sense of community and belonging, if one is driven by meaning and purpose, all of that I think is much more important than narrow academic performance. There is a literature out there that shows that inner city youth are much less likely to be engaged in at-risk behavior if they are embedded in a community based on meaning and purpose. So I, I, I think that we need to get that word out there and realize that uh, schools that provide meaning and purpose are more important than academic performance at this point. Uh, again, I, I know kids whose lives are at stake, literally sometimes, life or death matter, and for parents to be worried about test scores in situations like that is ridiculous. So this whole fear narrative that I think has come from problematic public schools over the last 30 or 40 years, and that's a whole other story about where that came from, 
that is driving, I would say, a really sick um, accountability movement in the United States. And I think we just need to move through this, uh, get people to realize that parental and student autonomy and school choice is the way forward and to allow people to choose the forms of cultural capital that will give them the best lives. And I think after a while, the test scores will again take care of themselves. Uh, but if people can't focus on what they're doing, if people are miserable, um, if people are partying all the time, whatever it is, they're just not going to perform, and they're not going to have good lives. So I want to segue in the small amount of remaining time we have to the entrepreneurship piece. And one of the things that you say in um, your book, Be the Solution, is that uh, and I don't have access to this quote. It's somewhere here. Um, it's basically that you can solve anything entrepreneurially. And I guess my concern is that we're seeing a lot of entrepreneurial efforts in education that are actually significantly based on these um, high stakes, um, more mimetic, kind of surface level views of education rather than the deeper views. So how does entrepreneurship play a positive role in education change? That's a great question. One of the things that um, perhaps should be clear, I mean, I was encouraged to have a provocative title, is that entrepreneurial solutions are effective within the right framework. And so just to take an example outside of education, um, if people are charged appropriately for um, you know, use of water, for instance, then they then an entrepreneur will not overuse water. But if um, you know, water is underpriced, then all the entrepreneurs are going to use too much water, and you will completely destroy an aquifer. So I always try to emphasize that the entrepreneurial solution part only works correctly if we get the system within which it is taking place right. And so the middle chapters of the book really are an attempt to focus on those system level issues. With respect to education, I think the most important part of the system level issues uh, really is a system driven by parents and students rather than by state level administrators or state level legislatures. Um, the whole testing movement is driven by governments at this point. If in the absence of that government push for formal accountability, there would certainly be some parents who would send their kids to schools based on test scores. That said, I think there would be an increasing number of parents, including some of the brightest parents, who realize that it's not about test score game. And in fact, progressive education for a long time has, in many cases, been led by some of the best educated parents. They're typically the ones first put their children into what might be called a progressive school. And I, th I think that in a full-blown market, and ed education is nowhere near a market, even private education world, um, one of the things I write about is we don't have a Silicon Valley of education that is a radically entrepreneurial education field, because even most private schools at present use the dominant operating system. The government school system has defined grade-level curricula. This is seventh grade math. This is eighth grade history. This is fourth grade English, whatever. Um, they've defined what it means to be a teacher with adequate expertise to teach those subjects. Oh, you're certified for middle school science. They've defined what the tests are at the end of the year. There are basically four 
for-profit testing companies that generate 96% of the standardized tests given in K-12 education. So we've got a for-profit quasi-monopoly, an oligopoly, that is dictating the testing of the United States. Um, all of these systems are even adhered to by most private schools because if you're a private school outside that dominant standard, um, you know, you're, you're a weirdo. Again, I, I've been in Montessori schools where our students were three, four years ahead of other students, and yet the public school will say, don't send them to Montessori school. They'll, behind, they'll be behind if you go to that hippie school over there. Now, so the, the analogy I like to use is uh, the existing dominant standard is much more powerful than Microsoft ever was in the 90s. It's legislatively financed and enforced. And so those of us who are trying to do something different are in a much weaker position than Linux and Apple operating systems were in the 90s. So one of the ways in which I see this moving is we've got this educated parent base, the kind of Whole Foods demographic, who if they had access to more educational freedom, I think would rapidly create the Whole Foods of education, the Apple of education, you know, radical, cool diversity all over in education, and things being what they are, uh, other demographics bit by bit would follow them. We also see name brand development of certain cultural attributes. Um, you know, schools that would be especially good at developing entrepreneurial skills could brand and develop their entrepreneurial technique. Uh, schools that were really good at developing discipline or the ability to avoid drug addiction or whatever, uh, those schools would develop a brand name credibility. Uh, right now, with one tiny school, a local small school might be able to develop a little bit of a reputation for things like that, but it's hard to really scale such programs under the existing regime. I see a world in which we have um, very large, sophisticated brand name educational providers specializing in cultural capital, uh, all the soft forms, all the wisdoms and virtues that I think are most interesting about human life. It is interesting to watch some smaller colleges begin to differentiate, to not follow the uh, Ivy League university model, but to begin practices around certain kinds of d uh, beliefs on learning. And it sure feels as though there's an opportunity now for those schools to um, shift their visibility and their um, attractiveness to students who maybe want something more authentic. Well, big time, I would say, by the way, um, that the, uh, not certification, um, accreditation systems are, are an obstacle to more innovation at the post-secondary level, secondary as well. But for instance, I'm a big fan of Olin College of Engineering, an innovative university that is based on project-based engineering, basically. Also, the, the Acton uh, Academy, or the Acton Business School in Austin, Texas. Olin is in Boston area. The Acton Business School uh, MBA program has, as its faculty, all entrepreneurs. Maybe one or two out of a faculty of 40 or 50 have PhDs, but there are almost no PhDs on the faculty. The accreditation systems don't like that, because for them, in order to be a good university, you have to be you know, staffed with PhDs. And yet it makes sense that if what you really want to develop are entrepreneurial business leaders, you should have real entrepreneurs and not PhDs teaching them. At St. John's, where we had a great books program, for four years everybody read the great books, we had a tiny library. We got dinged every time during the accreditation procedures for having a tiny library, and yet 
you know, we were all deeply intellectual. It's just that we're not a research university. And as a consequence, we didn't need to have a huge sociology library or a huge, you know, physics library. We were doing what we were doing and doing it, I think, very well. So one of the things, and of course, the problem with accreditation systems is federal money flows through, flows only to accredited universities. So if you're outside the accreditation system, um, your students don't have access to student loans, government student loans. Um, your research programs can't get government funding. You know, there are all sorts of sources of government funding that are not available to, student, to universities outside the accreditation system. So that acts as a, another way to enforce a dominant standard that prevents innovation. Um, I, I'd love to see a much broader movement that realized that if we want real innovation, uh, we need to allow people to do things very differently. And part of that will be failures. Um, you know, the, we have fabulous innovation in the tech world because in the 70s we allowed high school boys like you know, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates to create companies that now dominate the world. Um, you know, my, my vision of innovation is it always comes from people on the margins or on the edge. And yet, imagine, imagine at any education conference if you said, you know, what we need is we need to allow teenage girls to uh, create the next high schools and universities. You'd be like, what? They don't have degrees. How can they do this? Uh, but maybe, you know, the tech, tech revolution is teenage boys. Maybe the education revolution should be teenage girls. We've got to let them uh, loose and let them take off and do a cool, cool stuff. You know, I, I like to kind of shake things up a little bit and get people to think it's about learning and we need to be far more uh, radical and open about how we let people learn. Michael, I think you're going to really like Tony Wagner's book, Creating Innovators. He does some long profiles on Olin College. And he also makes the connection that the teachers at the highest universities who students say made the biggest difference for them are typically the non-tenured, uh, scrambling to get funding every year, but are the ones who really make a difference for the students. Um, if you, if if that's a connection I can help you with, please let me know. Um, as a courtesy to our guests, we always end on time. And so I want, to, I want to thank you for coming on. This has been really delightful. I, uh, I hope you don't feel I'm being presumptuous if I say I feel like I've made a new friend. I'm going to clap for you. I'm using the applause icon under the smiley face. Thanks so much, Michael. I can't hear you. We may have lost your audio, unfortunately. There. Okay, let me. Can you hear me? Yes, you're back. Okay. Okay. Oh, really nice to have you on. I think we're all leaving with this idea of a Whole Foods of education. It, there is a lot of discussion in the chat. I think that's going to be hard to, to let go of. Thanks to Michael Strong for coming on. His books are The Habit of Thought and Be the Solution. Um, thanks to you, all of you, for attending. Really appreciate it. Have a great day or evening, depending on where you are. Bye now.